There isn't a minimum height where you can fall without possibly getting injured. The higher you are, the more dangerous the fall. The median height leading to death is about 49 feet, which is roughly four or five stories high. And after 85 feet, nearly 100% of people will die. But what do you do when you fall? You put your hands down in front of you, or if you're falling backwards, some people reach behind. But what if you don't have time to process the fact that you're falling? One second, you're standing on a platform, looking out over a ledge, and enjoying the beautiful wilderness you're surrounded with by your friends. And the very next second, you're on the ground. But the height you fell from is over 85 feet high. It's actually 100 feet high. For Stacy Mitchell, he had that type of fall. One second, he was standing on a platform over a ledge at Cave Creek. They were enjoying the wilderness and the beauty all around them. And the very next second, the platform they were standing on collapsed. For a few seconds, he laid there trying to process what happened trying to come to terms with where he was at now because he wasn't looking out over the ledge and talking with his friends on the field trip they were on anymore. No, Stacy was now standing on a shattered platform. Some of his schoolmates were laying on top of it around him and some of them were underneath it. And all he could do was look at the scared faces of his group counselor and another classmate who weren't on the platform and ask what happened. Because after this, they would spend the next few hours waiting for help that took too long to come while they watched their classmates die. This is the story of the Cave Creek disaster, where a platform built by government officials was constructed so poorly that it collapsed and led to the death of 18 people, and how they had to sit around for hours waiting for help while one rescue helicopter flew above them. I'm Tatiana, and this is Occurrence. There was the Stephen Hannon before the collapse and the Stephen after. Before the collapse, Stephen was active and fit and enjoyed the outdoors. Running around and hiking and hunting were some of the things he liked to do. After the collapse, he had a different appreciation of life. But things are harder now. Just going to grab something from the kitchen was hard. He had a lot of bad days, more than most, but he had a lot of good days too. If he's able to try something, he will but he missed how easy things used to be. Before he joined the school's outdoor program, there was a polytechnic school in Greymouth, New Zealand that had an outdoor program. There were 40 students enrolled in the program and they came from all over the country. They all had a common love of the outdoors and that's what caused them to enroll. It was a lot of students first time being away from home so most of them lived in the hostel on campus. Andrew McCarthy was actually a physics teacher at the Catholic school next door. His daughter Catherine, who they called Kathy, was in the polytechnic program. And every single year, he can't help but to make sure his students understood a few things. One, that if you ignore physics, people die. And two, what went wrong in Cave Creek. Kathy was a tenacious girl who got into it with her dad sometimes, but was always encouraging. She lived with her mom up until she enrolled into the polytechnic program where she then went to live with her dad. The group would regularly go on field trips and they usually divided into two groups to do it, group A and group B. The first day, group A would go onto the field trip while group B stayed back on campus. And then the next day they would flip-flop with group B going on the trip and group A staying back. 
So on April 27, 1995, it was Group A's turn to visit this tourist destination called Cave Creek in Paparoa National Park. It was part of a system of wilderness, caves, and rivers, and the perfect place for an outdoor activities group. After making it to Punakaiki, they drove less than a mile north before turning onto Bollock Creek Farm Road. They drove down it for 20 minutes before parking the vehicles the Department of Conservation, who I'll call DOC, provided during tours in a flat area off to the side of the road. From there, they walked on foot, and everyone was super excited to visit a place they hadn't been before and to maybe get to walk in the water at Cave Creek. John Skilton was a polytechnic tutor and in charge of the group for this trip. Their first step along the trail was to check out the view from the wooden viewing platform off the right side of the trail. When the students laid eyes on it, they all rushed onto it to check out the view overlooking a ledge 100 feet above Cave Creek. But once they rushed onto the platform, a student dropped their umbrella accidentally over the ledge. So everyone leaned forward to watch it fall down. They were looking out over the platform. The railing on it was about waist high. But when everyone leaned forward on the platform to look at the umbrella fall, some people felt it flex a little. It rocked forwards and backwards really briefly. Shirley Slatter, who was a conservation officer for Punakaiki, said she felt this bouncing and jerking sensation on the platform, and it kind of made her nervous. And after some kids said, what would happen if we started jumping? You know, how some people are the ones who just kind of like to scare everyone else with their antics. Maybe you've been on a Ferris wheel with them, and they're the person that rocks the Ferris wheel seat to see what happens. Or the person that you're standing on a sketchy bridge with, and they shake it or jump just to see what happens. I'm sure everyone has encountered that type of person or has been that type of person. But either way, those kids were the ones who started jumping. Everyone took it pretty lightly. It didn't concern them, I guess. Shirley felt like it wasn't stable enough for all of them to be on it, especially jumping, so she asked for half of them to get off and told everyone to stop jumping. She noticed a wooden post in the front wavering a bit, and she hadn't seen that before. But for the most part, Group A's trip passed relatively smoothly. Once Shirley got back to headquarters, she mentioned what happened to her boss, Stephen O'Day. And not to get him mixed up with the Stephen I mentioned before, I'll call him Officer O'Day. So Shirley asked Officer O'Day to check it out. He was supposed to leave the next day to go up north for his son's eighth birthday, but instead decided to postpone in order to go with Group B and Shirley the next day to check it out. The next day, on the 28th, it's time for Group B's trip. On the way there, Annie, best friends with Leanne, was driving and stalled their van in a puddle on the way to Punakaiki. It was a funny experience and something unexpected but lighthearted to get the day started. It was a beautiful day. It was clear and they could see all the way up the coast. And one student in Group B mentioned how he wanted to climb the cliffs on the coast one day. They took the same route that Group A did the day before, through the farm, and onto the trail. And when they got to the top of the hill, right before the part of the trail leading to the platform, Leanne said that she started falling behind because her knee was feeling sore and she couldn't keep up with the fast walkers in the main group. Right around that time, Shirley, who was leading the tour group, slipped and twisted her ankle a little further up. After she did that, she kind of sat for a minute and decided that she wanted to go relieve herself in the bushes, and she just asked Officer O'Day, her boss, and John to continue on with the group. She goes and handles her business in the bushes, and before they actually get to the platform, 
John decided he needed to relieve himself too. So he branched off to relieve himself about 20 meters away from where the platform was. And that left Officer O'Day and 17 students to go look out over the outlook from the platform. In total, there are about five in the group that weren't on the platform. Three students, John the counselor, and Shirley the conservation officer. And suddenly, those five people heard an indescribable sound and screaming. They ran over to where they heard the noise coming from, and the three students who hadn't been there before didn't know what they were looking at, because there was nothing there. They could see a couple of steps off to the side, with nothing attached, it just looked like a normal slope looking out over the valley. But they could hear the screams that hadn't stopped. For John and Shirley, who had been there and knew what should have been there, they immediately jumped into action once they realized the platform had fallen down. Eighteen people standing on that wooden platform fell 100 feet to the bottom of Cave Creek. So Shirley grabbed a student named Mark, and they ran all the way back to the cars to radio for help. But when they got there, Shirley realized she didn't have the keys. There were three trucks there with radios attached, and they could only work if the vehicles were on. One set of keys was with Steve, and he was at the bottom of Cave Creek. So Shirley looked at the three vehicles she couldn't use, that were unlocked, and couldn't start, and looked to Mark and told him he had to run as fast as he could to the nearest house down the almost four and a half mile road. Mark is in a panic, but before he leaves, Shirley was smart enough to write a note. And that note said, quote, This is an emergency. We have 15 people, approximately, seriously injured. We need helicopters, scoop nets, medics, crash nets, and manpower. We are at Cave Creek Resurgence. Top platform collapsed. 100 foot drop. End quote. And then he was on his way. But a little after he left, Shirley ended up running into two cyclists who she sent after Mark. They managed to catch up to him, and one of them gave Mark his bike for him to ride to the house. By the time he made it to the house, to call for help, it was 12.15, and Mark was too distressed and breathless to finish the phone call, so the homeowner ended up finishing it by reading the note that Shirley wrote. And at this point, it had been 50 minutes since the platform collapsed. A rescue helicopter, an Air Force chopper, with four medics, three fire trucks, and a local rescue team were dispatched. Meanwhile, John and the two other students, Darren and Leanne, were making their way to the bottom of Cave Creek to check on everyone who fell. Before they could go down, John pulled them aside and warned them about what they were going to see. But nothing could have prepared them for what happened next. Once they got to the bottom, all they could see was the platform destroyed on top of rocks. There were two large rocks with space in between them, and the platform landed on top of those rocks. There were some people laying on top of the platform, but most of the people were underneath it. I'll explain exactly how that happened later, but once they got down there, they had a slight feeling of amazement when, among the students laying all around, Stacy stood up. When the platform fell, he was standing in a spot where he was able to grab onto the wood and kind of slide down after the platform. He was mostly uninjured, and John told him to go sit with Carolyn, a student screaming and yelling at them to get her out and suffering with a leg that was broken in three places. At this time, pretty much the only thing that could be heard was students screaming and crying. Another student, named Scotty, was also screaming and they couldn't get him to stop. 
He just wanted to be freed since he was trapped under four other students and was becoming increasingly agitated. It was such a tight space between the rocks and under the platform that they had a hard time getting under there to check on other people. The group spent the next hour separating the injured from the ones who didn't make it. And after that hour, there were only six students still alive. One was unconscious and breathing poorly. His name was Kit. Kit was raised on a large sheep station where both of his parents worked. He was a bit of a troublemaker, but it was only his way of trying to be different. He was excited to be in the program and felt like he found his people. This was about the time that Shirley came back to the platform. She got clothing from the vehicles and was going down to ask John where Steve was so she could get the keys to the vehicles. But all John could tell her was that he was sorry Steve was dead. She couldn't really process that. At this point, everyone was in such a focused mode, trying to help who they could, that they didn't really have time to process the gravity of what happened. But for Leanne, when she saw her best friend, Annie, at the bottom, that's where she lost it. Because Annie was at the bottom of everything. All of the students, the conservation officer, and the platform. The way she looked, Leanne almost felt relieved she wasn't alive, because she wouldn't have wanted her to be in that state. After an hour and a half passed, everyone started to wonder if help was ever coming, if the message was ever sent. And just as Darren was about to leave to go send a second message to get help to them, a helicopter arrived overhead. It was 100 minutes after the platform collapsed. Now 1.10 in the afternoon. The helicopter was there, but there was still no medical help on the ground. So John and Shirley were forced to pick who would be airlifted first. They had no medical training and no basis of determining who should go first or even how to make that decision at all. Do you pick who has the highest chance of survival? Do you pick who has the worst injuries? Do you bother sending someone who you don't think has the best chance of survival before sending those who you know will? They struggled to choose between Sam and Scotty, but figured Sam was worse off, so they put him on the stretcher first. They weren't actually sure how to put someone on the stretcher securely and safely, but the helicopter was so loud that they asked it to go away for a bit until they got him strapped on and then asked for it to come back. Scotty was getting increasingly agitated, so they decided they would send him next. But he was becoming so loud and everyone was already so upset and distraught that they decided to get away from him for a bit, just so that he wouldn't be so loud next to them. But after a minute, he got quiet, and when they went to check on him, they realized he stopped breathing. It felt like everyone stopped breathing when that happened. At some point during this time, one mom said that the news just came on, and she heard that there was an accident that killed 15 people that were there that day. She sat and waited to hear from Peter Shaw, her son who was on the trip. Peter was heavily involved in search and rescue since the age of 13, and had his own team that he was leading by 18. He would have moved mountains to make sure she knew he was okay. She wouldn't hear anything until 9 p.m. When the helicopter came back, they decided to send Carolyn Smith next, since she had a broken leg, and at this point, it was two in the afternoon. After her, they sent Stacy, since he didn't appear to be visibly injured, he went last. And then, first responders finally arrived on scene on the ground where the injured were at. One of them helped Leanne, who was, again, extremely distraught. And once the first responders arrived, 
Stephen was actually able to get help. They couldn't move him before or get him airlifted out because he had spinal injuries and they weren't qualified enough to even try to move him without making things worse. So practically three hours after the collapse, a person with severe spinal injuries was able to get help. And Stephen's injuries were so severe that I'll actually get back into that later. At around 2.30, Shirley and John finally left. John and the survivors didn't get back to Greymouth until 7 p.m. that night. During that time, it took three hours for the police and air teams to airlift out the 14 who didn't make it. By 6.15, the bodies had been laid out for identification at a temporary morgue at a hospital. But it wouldn't be until 8 p.m. for formal identification to be complete. And only then, eight hours after the collapse, could parents be notified. For most of the parents, they had to call around to get answers. Peter's dad called the police who told him to call the hospital, and they told him not to hold out hope. He said the hardest part was telling Peter's mom. Some parents had to call the school counselors to figure out what happened, and they would be confused wondering why the police hadn't contacted the parents yet, and that's how they found out. For some parents, they said that it didn't become real until certain things happened. For Evan Stewart's parents, who raised Evan on a sheep and cattle farm, and said Evan loved the outdoors and rock climbing. After knowing he was dead, they wanted to do the funeral quickly. Up until that point, the dad was able to hold it together, but when he was asked about cremation or burial, he lost it. For Allison Blackman's mom, three things made it very real for her. One was the person that called and told her there was an awful accident. Then the minister calling with a grave sounding voice. And last, was meeting with the funeral director. Officer O'Day's mom received a call about him being dead and asking if she would identify him. That's how she found out. Stephen Hansen, the one who had to be airlifted by trained paramedics due to spinal injuries, suffered with broken legs, arms, ribs, and his jaw in three places. His bowel was ruptured and he had a collapsed lung and smashed vertebrae. He had incomplete tetraplegia and spent 16 months in the hospital and had over 10 procedures. The day after the accident, the parents went to Cave Creek to see what happened. They needed answers for why their children were no longer with them. And when they got to the location where the platform was supposed to be, they were shocked because there was no platform. There were no supports, no counterweights, nothing was there. They could only cross their fingers to hope an official inquiry would be started. At the same time, the police had started their investigation and the Director General of the Department of Conservation and the Acting Minister of Conservation visited the site. The following Monday, there was a memorial service that the Prime Minister attended, and that very day, the inquiry was announced. It started in July and would go until September, and it looked at a variety of things. Each thing increasingly more infuriating, and just wait till you hear what happens at the end. So, there was a lawyer representing the victims and survivors and families, and then one representing the Department of Conservation, since everyone is like, how could this have happened? Who do we blame? So, here's how the platform ended up collapsing. Two Northern Operation Managers named Kevin Wilde and Trevor Worthy came up with this concept of, you know, this walk through Bullet Creek Farm so that people could have easy access to the wilderness while protecting the environment and ensuring public safety. 
Kevin put the manager of the Punakaiki field office in charge of the platform. His name was Craig Murdoch. Now, Craig had never done anything like that, so he gave the details to a worker named Les Van Dyke who had never built a platform before. He wasn't an engineer, architect, or anything like that. He was actually a motor mechanic by trade. Now, they put Van Dyke in charge of this, but I'm going to tell you now that even though he shouldn't have been put in charge of building this platform, this tragedy was not his fault, in my opinion. You can have feeling towards him now, but I think they're going to change by the end of this. So, Van Dyke finished his plans in November of 1992, and Kevin Wilde approved it. He didn't refer the plans to a professional engineer, but at the time, it wasn't super common to do that. Since it was approved, Van Dyke built the prefabricated platform at the Punakaiki site, and that December, the very next month, a helicopter carried the platform to Cave Creek. Coincidentally, on New Year's Day, 1993, just a few weeks after that, a new building act came into effect, which said that government departments, including the DOC, had to apply for building permits through local authorities for any structure that if it collapsed would cause the occupants to fall more than one meter. An email about that act was sent out in June of 1992 to all the DOC managers. For the next few months, the platform just kind of sat where it was dropped by the helicopter by Cave Creek until April 22nd and 23rd of 93. There were a few working days that the DOC had planned. 18 DOC staff were assigned to clear the tracks and other maintenance tasks. A group of four was assigned to assemble the viewing platform. Kevin Wilde, Mark Davis, Colin Malqueen, and Graham Quinn. Graham had completed a carpentry apprenticeship, but that was pretty much it for the amount of qualifications people had in this group. Van Dyke, the one assigned to design the platform, was strangely assigned to another group upgrading the tracks. No one in that group of four consulted his plans or took them to the site before they started building. Van Dyke's plans had steel supports, counterweights, bolts, pretty much most of what is needed to have a pretty solid platform, actually. Kevin and another person in the group said that they weren't given the plans or they didn't remember hearing about them. Another person said there was very little discussion about the way they would actually build the platform. So I'm sure you can imagine how this went. They didn't exactly have a plan for the positioning of the support post for the platform, which I'm going to call piles. The engineer in me just can't help it. There was no grid laid out. They just kind of eyeballed everything and stuck the piles where they could fit them around the roots and rocks that were on the ground. They weren't laid out in a straight line at all. They were literally randomly placed, and I'm guessing they forgot that where they were building was over a ledge, because the piles were actually hammered so far through the earth that they were hanging out on the other side of the ground. The piles that should have been in the ground so that they can be supportive were just hanging in the air on the other side of the ledge. If they had kept hammering the piles down, they would have fallen through then and there, 100 feet down where the platform would eventually end up. And speaking of hammers, they used hammers and nails for the entire design. Because they didn't have a drill, they couldn't find one. No one thought to bring one, so they just used hammers and nails for the whole thing. 200 nails in total to be exact, or somewhere around there. 100 on the first day and 100 on the second. There were bolts there, but because they didn't have a drill, they just decided to use the nails. But I digress. 
To build the rest of the bridge to attach the bearings to the piles, they put another piece of wood between it. So you have your support piles that's supposed to be in the ground, but it's actually hanging out on the other side of the ground. And then they put a little one to two inch block of wood in front of it as a support and then attach the actual bearing to support the base level of the platform. So instead of the nail doing its job that it really shouldn't have been doing in the first place, it wasn't really doing its job because this little nail had to go through about four to six inches of wood before it reached the support pile. So really the nails didn't make it even a quarter of a way into the pile. The nail was pretty much just there for show. After that, they cut off the access height of the piles to make it even, and that would take up most of the first day. The second day, the group of four came back and attached the prefabricated platform that Van Dyke had started previously to the top of their construction that they built the day before. They decided the amount of cantilever by pushing the boards in and out and seeing how much they could see below the platform. Cantilever is where one end of a structure is anchored into place while the rest of it just kind of juts out into space without any ground underneath it to support it. So one end of the platform was on the ground and the rest was just held out over the ledge. They determined that aspect of it by how much they could see below. There were no calculations or anything. It was more like eyeballing and going, oh, I feel like we can see too much or too little. Kevin and another worker spent part of the second day digging a trench at the back of the platform while the others finished the handrails. They wanted to come back another day and build the concrete steps to be attached to the platform by bolts that was supposed to act as the counterweight, but there was no actual discussion about how or when this was going to be done. And then, after this group finished their platform that I'm 100% sure they believed to be built safely because after they did it, all four of them got onto the platform and had their picture taken. They clearly didn't realize how dangerous it was to be on that platform one, with how it was built, but two, because there was no counterweight on it yet. But it obviously held 200 nails in all, but that counterweight wouldn't be made for another year. And during this time, the park was open and that platform was open for people to get on as they pleased. During that time period where there was no counterweight between 1993 and 94, two official visits happened. The first one was in September and one official made a joking remark about if the necessary building consents had been filed for the platform. He would later deny saying that, but someone reported hearing him say it. Later in 94, Colin Malqueen was asked by Kevin to finish the job and pour the concrete, but Colin wasn't given any instructions on what exactly he was building, and there was no oversight. He wasn't told to use steel, and there wasn't even steel on site. He didn't know why he was pouring the concrete, and he believed that they had fixed the structure securely enough to the piles that he didn't think pouring the concrete was important to the safety of the system overall. He didn't know why he was pouring the concrete, he just thought it was steps. He even covered it with wood decking. Three months after that, the second official visit happened with the conservation board, and the issue of consent was raised for the platform. This meeting was between Bruce Watson regional conservator, Kevin Wilde, Craig Burdock, and a chairman of the board. When Bruce heard that there wasn't a building consent for the platform, he was very unhappy with it, and he then asked Kevin and Craig to get the necessary consent done and follow up with it. 
at first they were doing that, but when they were unable to get the necessary consents, they just filed the application away. In January of 1995, a warning sign was ordered for the platform for a maximum person limit. The employee who ordered that sign was on vacation when it came in, so the sign was just put away and forgotten. The maximum capacity for the platform was five people. And a later experiment would show the platform collapsing with only 10 people on it. So let's count up the mistakes. One, there was no building consent. Two, the designer wasn't qualified for the job. Three, it was a faulty design. Four, they didn't use steel. Five, they didn't use the design plans. Six, was the designer was left out of the construction group. Seven, the bearings were poorly nailed to the piles. Eight, the platform was never attached to the counterweight. And nine, the maximum capacity sign was lost. And there are more. I could get really nitty-gritty with it, but I digress. After that, all of the parents were certain that something would be done. Someone would be held responsible because you don't get to be that disorganized. To have a government organization so poorly functioning and no one be held responsible. But that's exactly what happened. According to Judge Noble, who sided with the DOC's argument that it was a systemic failure on behalf of the organization, so he couldn't point the blame at any single individual. No one was fired. No one was fined. No one went to jail. People were telling the parents, you know, shouldn't you just try to make sure that this doesn't happen again? but the parents of the victims were feeling that it shouldn't have happened at all, and they wanted accountability. They tried to see if they could go after the officials themselves, but there were rules in the government that prevented that from being possible. The police were the only other people who could have gone after the individuals they felt were responsible for the deaths in Cave Creek. And the lead investigator himself was actually surprised that the people weren't prosecuted. But as it turns out, the Solicitor General would have had to make the ultimate decision on that case, and he decided not to pursue it, possibly because of how high into the government the investigation would go. Now, this did shock me, but this is New Zealand, so I'm not sure how the justice system works there, but here in America, they go after everybody for everything. I mean, even the presidents are not safe from being prosecuted. But the only person who resigned in a meaningful way at a meaningful time was Bruce Watson, the regional conservator who told them to get the platform properly certified. The parents felt he shouldn't have had to do that because he was the only one who did his job honestly. A year after the tragedy, the Minister of Conservation would resign, but he still remained as a full member of the cabinet. In 1997, Bill Mansfield would resign. He was the head of the DOC. He originally said he wouldn't resign in the beginning because he wanted to see through the changes to make sure this didn't happen again. But it's speculated that he was eventually pushed out, even though he denied those claims. Decades after the disaster, the Department of Conservation claims that it restructured its organization. They have more people in the field, there are clear lines of leadership and accountability, and it's not a question that if a similar accident happened again, the head of the organization and potentially anyone else responsible are required to hand in their resignation. They make it a point to make it known that since that accident, they thoroughly train their officers in safety and procedures, and that they go through training regularly, revisiting what went wrong in Cave Creek. Cave Creek is now a memorial, 
but the parents have different ways of honoring their kids. The parents of one victim took a stone from Bullock Farm by Cave Creek and put a plaque on it that sits by the pond on their property that their child loved to catch frogs in as a kid. One father went to a son's grave every day for a long time and would write poetry and read it to him. Some parents say they cry what feels like all day and some manage to barely cope. The parents of one victim said they feel like they've been given a life sentence. And one mother says she leaned heavily into her religion. One father goes through the inquiry over and over again and says he probably wouldn't ever be able to move on unless there was true accountability. Within three years following the disaster, most of the people involved with the platform moved on from the organization. The victims of Cave Creek were Catherine McCarthy, Abram Larmore, Deanne Reed, Paul Chisholm, Scott Murray, Allison Blackman, Anne Marie Cook, Jody Davis, Peter Shaw, Barry Hobson, Matthew Reed, Kit Palsy, Evan Stewart, and DOC Punakaiki Field Center Manager Stephen O'Day. What do you think about the fallout from this tragedy? Leave your opinions in the reviews or comments, and don't forget to follow or subscribe. All sources can be found at occurrencepod.com. Stay safe and see you next week.